Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, this morning is uh, an exciting time. We've been waiting for some time. I know a lot of us anticipating beginning a brand new series in Acts. And that's where we come to today. The day has finally come. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to look at Acts chapter 1. The title of this morning's message is The Unquenchable Flame. And we're going to begin by reading through uh, Acts 1 together. So if you've got a Bible, do open up to Acts 1 and I shall read it for us. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Peter goes on, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, and Matthias. 
And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. It all began on Sunday, the 2nd of September, a hot, dry, and windy evening. The perfect conditions for the rapid spread of fire. It began at a bakery belonging to the king's baker. And it's believed he initially put out the fire after a single spark from his oven hit fuel in his kitchen. But unfortunately, by the early hours of the morning, his house was ablaze and the fire began to spread. The year was 1666. For the next four days, the fire swept through London. 436 acres of the city were destroyed, including 1,300 houses and 87 churches. The scale of the fire's spread was almost unimaginable, and it all began with a single spark from an oven. I'm sure many of us will be familiar with the story of the Great Fire of London. Perhaps it's the first event that would come to our minds if someone asked us to name what is the greatest fire in history. But I wonder if when asked that question, we might instead call to mind a greater fire still. One which started 1,600 years before the London one and which is still ablaze today. I'm talking about the fire that began in Jerusalem around AD 30. Here's, what, here's how one study Bible introduces it. It says, nearly 2,000 years ago, a match was struck in Palestine. At first, just a few in that corner of the world were touched and warmed, but soon the fire spread beyond Jerusalem and Judea, out to the world and to all people. Acts provides an eyewitness account of the flame and fire, the birth and spread of the church. Beginning in Jerusalem with a small group of disciples, the message traveled across the Roman Empire. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, this courageous band preached, taught, healed, and demonstrated love in synagogues, schools, homes, marketplaces, and courtrooms, and on streets, hills, ships, and desert roads. Wherever God sent them, lives and history were changed. That, I think, is a very helpful and enticing introduction to what to expect in this book together. The Acts provides an eyewitness account of the flame and the fire, the birth of the church and the unstoppable spread of the gospel. And here in the very first chapter, the case for the gospel's unquenchable flame and its unstoppable spread is made in at least three ways. And so these are the three things we're going to focus on and draw out this morning. We're not going to draw out everything in the chapter, but these three things in particular that will give us confidence. The first great pillar of confidence, if you like, that we find in chapter one is that this book records the acts of gospel history. That's our first heading for this morning, the acts of gospel history. What I mean by that is that acts exists to tell us that the flame of the gospel has already been powerfully lit, that God and his gospel are already mightily at work in the world. Acts is written to assure us of that. Even for its first readers, who would have lived in about the AD 60s, just 30 years after the events of Acts chapter 1, this fire was already ablaze. The gospel by then had already gone forth and begun, begun its unstoppable spread. And 
as we know, it hasn't stopped or slowed down or retreated in the 2,000 years since either. Acts is the divinely given account of this unquenchable flame's first beginnings. And knowing this tells us a lot about how we ought to read the book together. The Bible, as you may know, is full of many different genres and types of literature. Not every book in the Bible is meant to be read in exactly the same way. In fact, we don't take the Bible seriously as God's word if we ignore the different styles of writing that God chooses to speak to us through. So you'll know some of the Bible is history, some poetry, some proverbial wisdom, some is prophetic, some apocalyptic, some is law, some is lessons and letters or liturgy. So it's important for us to ask at the outset of our series, what kind of book is the book of Acts? If we go ahead and read it as a book of poetry or a book of liturgy, we'll miss much of its meaning. And so too, if we just go and read it like we might read a New Testament letter, like Romans or Ephesians or Colossians, again, we'll miss, miss much of its intent and significance as well. So how ought we to be reading Acts? First of all, we ought to read Acts as trustworthy history. You see, in the very first verse of Acts 1, Luke refers to another book, his first book, the Gospel of Luke. And he tells us he's going to continue telling in Acts the same history that he began telling in the Gospel of Luke, which means Acts is volume two of a two-volume work. We're, we're jumping into the second volume, and in, we're always told not to do that, aren't we, with books and films, but I'm trusting you know something of what's in the first volume. But as was common with multi-volume works back then, Luke's opening words in the first part really act like a preface or an introduction to both volumes. So keep a finger in Acts 1. If you can, turn back to Luke 1. Here's how Luke introduces his gospel. Luke 1 verse 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke sets out in both his books to record with the greatest care the actual history of things that have taken place. He is intent on writing an organized history based on some rigorous research and based on some eyewitness accounts. Now, by, by his profession, we know that Luke was a doctor. And as such, he would have been well-educated uh, and a qualified researcher. Many a modern-day historian has just marveled at the careful and precise and accurate detail of Luke's historical writings. But I think what makes Luke's research doubly impressive is he didn't do it from the confines of a university or a comfy desk in the library somewhere. He traveled many hundreds of miles across land and sea in order to hear from eyewitnesses personally and even witnessed some of the later events of the book himself as he traveled with Paul. As someone once put it, in, in Luke's quest to, correct, uh, to collect accurate historical details, Luke was much more like Indiana Jones than a dusty old history professor. And Luke also tells us the reason he sets out to compile this history. He does it for a friend called Theophilus, that Theophilus might have certainty about the Christian truths that he's been taught. Now, we don't know for sure who Theophilus is. Uh, his name in Greek means friend of God. 
And he was likely someone who was either exploring Christianity from the outside looking in, or perhaps someone who was already a young believer. And I wonder, maybe you're here this morning and you're a bit like Theophilus. Perhaps you've already been taught a fair amount of things about Christianity throughout your life so far. Maybe because you grew up, you've been growing up in a Christian family. Uh, Maybe because you've been looking into these things for some time. But maybe you sometimes wonder if you actually believe these things for yourself. You're somewhat confident in what you've heard, but you wonder if that confidence is only there because perhaps you, you love the people that have shared these things with you rather than you being confident in the actual truthfulness of the message itself. It's not unusual to feel that way. Let me reassure you, first of all, this morning. Uh, I think especially so if you've grown up in a Christian household, which is a blessing. Luke and Acts are written to give someone like you more confidence in the gospel itself, more personal certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So please, first of all, don't feel embarrassed or ashamed if right now you're wrestling with uncertainties about your faith. If you don't know what's just inherited belief versus what you actually believe for yourself. But please do lean in in the coming weeks and months. Because Luke says this book is designed to give you the very assurance and certainty and personal conviction that you've been looking for. It is waiting for you right here in the pages of this book, put there by God through Luke for you to find. Acts is a trustworthy history written to give us even more certainty. So let's all of us come each week expecting our confidence to grow. The second way to read Acts is to read Acts as God-centered theology. It is God-centered theology. Uh, Lots of people you meet in life are skillful in more than one thing. And uh, as I think about many of you, I can think about folks who've got an incredible array of skills in all sorts of different fields. And Luke is no exception. He's not just a careful historian. He's also a deep-thinking theologian. And as such, he has these key themes that he wants to draw out and highlight throughout the book. So in Acts, we're going to encounter a wide variety of examples of the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll be presented with a window into the life and the practices of the early church. We'll see the implications of gospel love for Christian unity and relationships. And we'll hear how the gospel can be introduced into many different evangelistic contexts and settings. But equally, Luke doesn't tell us everything we might need to know about each of those topics. If he did, we wouldn't need the rest of the New Testament. He doesn't tell us, for instance, everything we might like to know about the Holy Spirit and all that we might dearly love to know about the effects of his coming at Pentecost and his indwelling every believer. We have to look to the rest of the New Testament as well. Instead, Luke's focus is primarily on showing us how it was that the gospel so quickly and powerfully reached so many people back in the very beginning in such a short 30-year period. And Luke's ultimate focus, as we'll see, is on God himself and on what God is doing in people's lives wherever the gospel goes. One of Luke's obvious passions is to just highlight repeatedly how so many of the events in Acts are the direct fulfillment of God's earlier promises. And so we'll see as we go through, the book is going to be filled with events and allusions and Old Testament quotations, all shining a spotlight onto the faithfulness of God who keeps every promise of his word. 
And so we should come to Acts every week looking first and foremost to see God himself and what he is doing. And we should come away every time marveling at his love and his power and his faithfulness and, and frankly just staggered that his plan to reach the nations might include you and me as well. And thirdly, we should read Acts as compelling story. We should read Acts as compelling story. I don't mean by that in any way that we're reading something fictional. Acts is true and accurate history, as we've just seen. But it's not just a list of facts and dates. It's written as a narrative, as a story. Meaning, like every good story, it is written to be compelling and exciting, to capture our imaginations and stir our emotions and draw us irresistibly in. And so the way that we read it, the way we're going to preach it, ought to be different to how we might read and preach a New Testament letter. In the letters, there's often great merit in going slower, in pouring over every verse and its implications. But in biblical narrative, in, in this kind of story, though every verse is just as much God's word, we are often meant to draw in, be drawn into the faster pace and the excitement of what's taking place. And so on Sunday mornings, we, we don't intend to go too slowly through this book, nor will we be commenting on every verse, but we're going to try and grasp the bigger picture of its chapters each week so that together we might get swept up into the bigger story and the excitement of the gospel going forth. That, that's, how the, uh, that's how Acts is meant to be read, especially because Acts is nothing less than our own story. This book is all about the birth of our church, the same church that we are a part of today. It's like being invited onto an episode of, anyone watch the program, Who Do You Think You Are? They get a celebrity on there and uh, uncover and unearth their, their sort of their heritage, their lineage, their ancestors. All of the stories of those who went before us and the person and us, we get to bask in the wonder of being part of something so much bigger than ourselves. So there is so much for us to be inspired by and to learn from this book as we look back. As we look back at our Christian heritage together. But that doesn't mean we necessarily jump to assume that we have to replicate everything we see. Everything our Christian ancestors did. We don't have to wear the exact same clothes they wore or eat the same food they ate. Unless God's word makes it clear that we should. Perhaps you've heard it said that, that a book like Acts is more descriptive than prescriptive. That means oftentimes Luke's intention is simply to describe what happened then and not necessarily prescribe what should still happen in exactly the same way now. As one commentator put it, while Luke describes the events of the early church, he does not always commend its practices to us. For instance, I don't think we should read of Paul's healing handkerchiefs and assume we need to start a handkerchief ministry. Rather, we must allow the whole of the Bible to help us make interpretations and applications for the modern world. Just as the Gospels describe a unique period in salvation history, so the book of Acts records another unique period in salvation history. It's going to record the first coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. The birth of the church, the gospel beginning to cross all national and ethnic boundaries for the very first time, each with their own little mini Pentecost experiences. And so we need to read Acts with careful thought and attention to not just expect everything to be precisely repeatable today, 
but certainly to identify its effects, the unchanging principles and God's clearly revealed will and purposes for us today. But having said all of that, let's be in no doubt, this is our story. This is the birth of our church family. This is the beginning of the gospel age in which we still live today. The history of the gospel's unquenchable flame and its unstoppable spread is well and truly underway. And just like that spark in the bakery in 1666, once it's been lit, nothing can stop it from catching and spreading. The very history of its initial flames in the book of Acts is the first great pillar of assurance that assures us that still today nothing can stand in the gospel's way. That's the first one, that's the longest one. The second great pillar of assurance to be found in chapter 1 this morning is that this book is a record of the acts of the ascended Jesus. The acts of the ascended Jesus. You, you may have heard the phrase hiding in plain sight. Uh, it's used to describe something that is right there in full view, yet not many people or anybody sees it precisely because it looks so ordinary and it blends in. So every time I lose the TV remote at home, I enter into a flurry of frustration, tossing cushions and coffee cups aside, left, right and center, only for another usually calmer family member to come along and show me it was right there in front of me all along. It was hiding in plain sight. Well, there's quite a remarkable statement in Acts 1 verse 1 that we often breeze over because it's very much hiding in plain sight and we overlook its significance. I wonder, can you see what it is? Acts 1 verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The remarkable implication is that Acts is about all that Jesus continued to do and teach. Now maybe that surprises us. Surely we think the Gospels are all about what Jesus did and taught, and Acts is going to be about what the church did and taught. But no, says Luke, Jesus is the primary character and teacher and actor in the book of Acts as well. Jesus is actively at the center of all this book's events. Okay, so how can this be? Firstly, because of his resurrection. Luke mentions it in verse 3. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus is alive and risen. But not only that, before this first chapter is halfway through, he's also ascended to heaven. And that is vitally important for us to know as well. Sometimes I think we forget the ascension. And when we do, we lose out on a huge source of encouragement. Jesus' ascension, his, his rising to heaven, is as vital in the chain of gospel events as his birth, death, and resurrection. It is such an, an important watershed moment, in fact, that Luke records it twice. First at the end of his gospel, and then here at the beginning of Acts. He doesn't want his readers to breeze over the significance of Jesus' ascension. So we are not going to breeze over it this morning. Let's take a closer look. Let's read from verse 6. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, we'll come back to those parting words in just a few minutes. But first of all, let's consider Jesus' actual ascension. Here is Jesus standing there physically before them in his resurrected body, just as he's been appearing to them now for 40 days, teaching them more about his kingdom and his plans and his purposes for them. Now, put ourselves in the disciples' shoes. No doubt they are overjoyed to have him back with them. I'm sure they're still dumbstruck at the fact that he has risen from the dead. But then all of a sudden, verse 9, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. The risen Jesus, before their very eyes, is taken up into heaven. He physically ascends right in front of them, and Luke makes this point very clear of telling us that a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, I know uh, in England, we love to talk about the weather. Uh, it's one of our favorite conversation starters. But Luke is not here making a comment about the weather. He's not saying, oh, well, it happened to be a cloudy day, just to set the context and the scene. No, this cloud is full of biblical significance and meaning. This cloud is something referred to in the Old Testament as the Shekinah glory, the dwelling glory of God. It's a visible manifestation of the presence and glory of God. Kent Hughes writes, this was the same symbol that Moses had encountered on Sinai when God covered him with his hand so that Moses only saw the afterglow. It was the same cloud that traveled before Israel by day, a pillar of fire by night. It was the cloud that lay over the tabernacle and filled the temple. It was the cloud that Ezekiel saw depart over the east gate. It was the same presence that surrounded Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when his face shone forth like the sun. It's also the same cloud that Daniel spoke of. In Daniel 7 where he wrote, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This, then, isn't just Jesus' return to heaven. This is his exaltation to his throne. This is his coronation. As he takes his place at the right hand of the Father and now reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. And all of this is intended to tell us that Jesus isn't gone. He isn't history. This wasn't the end of his gospel ministry. He hasn't resigned or retired or retreated. No, he's reigning and his localized ministry on earth is now replaced by the, his supreme and omnipresent ministry over all of the earth from heaven. Jesus hasn't left the mission field. He hasn't handed over and relinquished his part in ensuring that the gospel will go to the nations. No, he's the one sovereignly at work ensuring that it will. And once you realize this and see this in Acts chapter 1, we begin to see that the rest of Acts isn't just about Jesus no, Acts is the account of Jesus himself personally and powerfully active and at work on the earth, amongst his people, leading from the front to make the good news known. And you see this in the constant references to the Lord throughout the book. 
which in Acts almost always refers to Jesus. So we'll see him, we'll see him referred to in selecting a new apostle to replace Judas, Acts 1. We'll see him referred to pouring out the promised Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. It's him who's saving and adding people to the church day by day in Acts 2. It's, to the, it's the Lord appearing to Ananias and to Paul in Acts 9 and 18. It's the Lord healing the paralyzed man in Acts 9. The Lord being worshipped in the church gathering in Acts 13. It's Jesus blinding a magician who stirs up opposition to the gospel. It's Jesus, we're told, opening people's hearts to truly hear the gospel, Acts 16. The book of Acts could not be clearer. All these marvelous deeds are the actions of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, continuing to do and teach and usher in his kingdom. Jesus hasn't gone anywhere. He hasn't deserted his church. He has promised to be with his people always, right through to the end of the age. And that's the second great pillar of assurance given to us so clearly in Acts chapter 1. The gospel flame is unquenchable. Its growth and spread throughout our world unstoppable because this book is a record of the continuing acts of the ascended Jesus, the exalted King of Kings. The apostles and the church, they're just the vehicle through which he himself has promised to take the gospel to the nations. And he does so thirdly and finally and briefly this morning through spirit-empowered witness. This book records the acts of spirit-empowered witnesses. Uh, Let's put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples again. Just imagine for a moment the mix of emotions that they have to have been feeling by this point. Devastated by Christ's crucifixion, overjoyed by his resurrection, but now unsure about his returning to heaven and where it's going to leave them and the promises concerning his kingdom. Then, just before he leaves, he gives to them what must have sounded like the most impossible commission. This this mission in verse 8. You will be my witnesses. Shock. And then in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's quite an incredible thing to say, isn't it? I discovered this week that our English word witness comes from an old Elizabethan English word. So maybe you find it in Shakespeare. uh, To wit, which means to know. To wit means to know. A wit is someone who knows something. So a witness is someone who knows something and who testifies to what they know. Someone who simply tells others what they know about a particular thing. The, the, The thing about a witness is you don't have to know everything about everything. You don't have to have a high IQ. You don't have to be able to answer all of the questions on university challenge. You just have to know what's true about the thing you're called to witness about. And the thing the disciples are called to witness about is simply Jesus. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. They're to tell others about him, about what they have seen and heard Jesus do. To tell others of who he is and how he came, of his life and death and resurrection and ascension, along with an invitation to receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life through faith in him. They're simply to pass on what they know about him, and they're to do so to the very ends of the earth. Verse 8 is the map at the beginning of the book that is going to plot the progress of the gospel all throughout the book of Acts. Some of the best books, I think, have maps at the beginning. 
Well, Acts has got its map in verse 8. They will be his witnesses in Jerusalem. That's, we're going to see that, chapters 1 to 7. Then in Judea and Samaria, that will be chapters 8 to 12. And then on out into Asia and Greece and even Rome, chapters 13 to 28. But before we get excited about the map and where it's going, let's remember who's standing in front of Jesus right now. Who is he commissioning? Just 11 regular guys, many of them once humble fishermen, they're already down one uh, from the original 12 with Judas gone. Peter now knows full well he's not nearly as brave as he used to think he was, having denied Jesus three times after his arrest. And all the other disciples at that point had run for the hills as well. And now here is that same Jesus asking them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, which was the very city he was crucified in, in Judea, where they'd already been rejected earlier on, in Samaria, a place full of Jewish enemies, and then on into the pagan Gentile world who'd never even heard that there is one God. And how much, I wonder, can we relate to what they must have now been feeling? We know, don't we, what it is to feel daunted and overwhelmed, even by the prospect of telling just one friend, one neighbor, one colleague or family member about Jesus. How tempted we can be to think that the message we have to share is, is going to prove itself to be weak and unimpressive in their eyes. Or maybe even more commonly, we think how weak and unimpressive we will appear in their eyes as we try to tell them. Maybe we worry that churches are dwindling in the UK, that the culture is becoming more hostile to Christianity, that the message about God stepping into human history to live and die and rise to rescue sinners, well, that just sounds more and more strange and unusual day by day to our modern secular society. I can't quite imagine, but I can empathize with what these 11 lone disciples were thinking back at the very start of the church age, especially with Jesus leaving them at the very point he's commissioning them, leaving them to go it alone. Except, of course, they're not going it alone. They're not going it alone because Jesus prefaces their commission in verse 8 with a promise, a promise of power from on high. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Then you will be my witnesses in all of these places. The book of Acts records for us the lives and testimonies of spirit-empowered witnesses, of witnesses empowered by God. And as we'll see, that's the only effective witness there can be. In fact, Jesus tells them in verse 4, they mustn't even try and get started on the mission yet. They must wait Verse 4, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Peter, let's take Peter. Peter's not ready here in Acts 1 to stand up in front of a great crowd in Jerusalem and boldly preach the gospel to them, like we're going to see him do next Sunday in Acts 2. Now, in order to get from Acts 1 to Acts 2, he has to first receive the Spirit's power. We're going to find out more next week about who this spiritual power is given to. But it, it isn't that anyone is about to become a superhero either. Okay, so that's what we're thinking. No, this is a promise that the Holy Spirit will come to embolden everyday Christians and enable them to simply give first-hand witness, testimony 
of what they have seen and heard and come to know about Jesus, whether it's from a pulpit or a balcony or in everyday life and conversation. And that's all part of the excitement of the story and of working through biblical narrative together. It comes with cliffhangers and unanswered questions so that we, we're compelled we have to come back now next Sunday and find out more. But in the meantime, this morning and this week, let's bask in the promise of Acts 1 that God is already on an unstoppable mission to take the gospel to the nations. Let us all be assured that the fire of the gospel has already been lit 2,000 years ago and its message is an unquenchable flame that will surely spread to the very ends of the earth through the witness of the church and in the mighty power of the Spirit. And, and it's all because the king is not gone. He is alive and lifted up on his throne and reigning over the church and reigning over the spread of the gospel today. We know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. One day a great multitude of people from every tribe and language and people and nation will joyfully worship him as their saviour and Lord. But let's ensure that we are counted today, each one of us, counted today amongst those who believe and trust in him and who are saved through his wonderful gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the unquenchable flame that is the gospel and for the one that this good news is all about. Jesus Christ, your son, our saviour and risen reigning king. Lord, as we enter into this new series in Acts, we pray that your word would do its intended work in us. Lord, to make us even more certain of the things we have heard and been taught and make us even more confident and assured of the gospel-saving power and its unstoppable spread. Lord, we pray, please fill us afresh with your spirit, even this week, and empower us to be Jesus' witnesses in word and deed, in the everyday situations and conversations in which you place us. For your glory, we pray. Amen.